So this is part number 10 of our study in Exodus, and we're going to probably finish this either next Wednesday or two weeks from tonight. You'll see why uh, this last section of the Exodus is primarily concerned with uh, the tabernacle and all the instructions on building the tabernacle. Uh, I mean, it's down to the very fabric description and colors even uh, in the latter part of the book of Exodus. So what we will do is just outline some of those things. And then what I want to do is uh, point out a few things tonight and then a few things next week. And then what I would like to do is kind of connect how the two of these things uh, relate uh, to Christmas, because there's an interesting phrase that's used in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, where uh, the Gospel writer intentionally uses the idea of the tabernacle. Um, when we often hear uh, the phrase, he dwelt among us, Jesus dwelt among us, the actual word there is he tabernacled among us. And uh, so I'll, I'll make a couple of points about that next week. It's interesting how the New Testament comes back to this unique structure. Uh, this structure is something that is is some is something that's very detailed. As you can see on the screen here, let me give you a couple of introductory comments on our um, on our section for tonight. So what's going to happen is after Moses initially receives the Ten Commandments, but before he will receive the entirety of the law as he stays up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, he will um, have a celebratory meal in God's presence. And there's some symbolism to that. It's kind of the ratification of the covenant that God had made with the nation. What we will then see is him being gone for so, so long will produce an overreaction in the lives of the Israelites, and uh, they will insist on some type of iconic representation of God, and you'll be familiar with the golden calf, and then uh, we'll see a couple of points tonight that Moses is going to intervene on their behalf because it appears that God is so uh, angered by his people that he's willing to wipe out the covenant. So we'll come to that in a few moments. The interesting thing that we'll note is on Mount Sinai, it seems as though the way the text unfolds is there's kind of a three layer section to the mountain at the base the people can gather in the middle um which isn't defined real well but kind of halfway up the mountain you're going to see tonight in the text that Moses will leave Joshua at, 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 to camp there evidently what's happening is they are still close enough to the people that representatives uh, can call upon Joshua's wisdom. Remember back in chapter 18 of Exodus when Moses was judging all the disputes among the people, um, but Moses will be up at the top. Now, this three layers is quite interesting because these three sections will be represented in some ways to the three sections of the tabernacle structure where you have the outer court you have the holy place and you have the holy of holies. And we might see that the tabernacle is kind of a portable Mount Sinai that they take with them on their journeys. And so just kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we uh, look at these chapters tonight. What I want to do uh, tonight is begin in chapter 24. So if you have your Bible in front of you, turn to chapter 24, and you're going to see, beginning down in verse 9, uh, this celebratory meal that concludes the unveiling of the uh, laws that are given, uh, not only in chapter 20 where the Ten Commandments are, but 
You remember last week we talked about this alternating pattern between worship and social commandments that are kind of interwoven in this section. Well, when this has already been revealed, uh, what we will find is that they will conclude this revelation with a meal. So if you come to verse 9 of chapter 24, it says, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, which are Aaron's sons, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and they drank. So in this meeting of not just Moses, but the leaders, assumably um, many of the leaders that were appointed by Moses to take care of the judging that was uh, mentioned back in chapter 18, these individuals are invited into God's presence. And this particular uh, element is accompanied uh, by a meal. And this meal uh, represents the finalization of the covenant. Now, what happens next is quite, quite really quite interesting. So he's going to lead these people kind of halfway up the mountain. Take a look at verse 13. It says here that Moses set out with Joshua and his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. So he's going to leave the majority of the leaders behind. And then Moses is going to ascend to the top of the mountain. And it is here the glory of God will be revealed. It says, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. And for six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. And then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up into the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, there should be some lights going off on your dashboard here. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is this sounds a lot like Genesis. Six days and one, and then later in Genesis where it rains uh, and the flood occurs, how long uh, is Noah in the ark for 40 days and 40 nights? So there's some illusions that are going all the way back into Genesis here as well. This celebratory meal is part of the ancient culture, and it's uh, a way of sealing the contract between God and his people. Only Moses fully enters God's presence, as you see here, in verse 16, and it is there he's going to spend an extended time in the presence of God. Now, that's going to cause problems, but the next chapter doesn't tell us what that problem is going to, to be. Rather, what we see is a phrase that occurs seven times in the section we're looking at tonight. The Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, verse 1 of chapter 25, the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. So what's going to take place now is the revelation and instructions on how to build this um, mobile Mount Sinai, this portable worship structure that will travel with them through the wilderness. So let me stop there and see if you have some questions, anything I can clear up, any insights that you might have. Okay, here is a picture of what is given by instruction in chapters 25 and following. You'll see here that there is this outer court and this outer court has 
uh, various pieces of furniture in it. Then you have the holy place, and this is divided in two. And inside you have the holy place and the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is. We'll get to that in a couple of moments. But this is the structure that they will uh, build again and again as they travel through the, excuse me, the wilderness. It will be here that there is offerings that are given. Uh, there, there is a place of washing uh, for the priests. And inside is a table of showbread representing the 12 tribes of Israel by means of a loaf of bread. And there is the lampstand in there as well. And then there is the Ark of the Covenant. All of these are symbolic measures that will be important to the life of the nation. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant, i.e. Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, becomes a uh, representation of God's glory and power that people want to tap into. Uh, if you remember that movie from long ago, it was the Nazis in that film that wanted to obtain the Ark of the Covenant because it was the power of God that they could harness for their own purposes. But here we find, and we don't understand the fullness of that relationship here in Exodus. That will come a little bit later when we see how the Ark of the Covenant is moved in several different places and uh, a disregard on how to handle the Ark of the Covenant is met with judgment in a couple of places. So what I'm going to try to do, so you get kind of a 3D look at this structure, is I'm going to go to um, a website, uh, vimeo.com, and what I want to do is show you a video uh, that you'll be able to see in living color what this might have looked like. So let me go here to our screen sharing for a moment. I'm gonna stop this share just for a moment and I'm gonna go over here and I'm gonna find this. That's not the one I wanted. Hold on a second here. Where am I at? Okay. Hopefully you'll be able to see this. Now it's just kind of a musical background. So if I forgot to click on share the sound, it doesn't matter. But I do want you to notice um, kind of a 3D, 3D portrait of the tabernacle and how it looks. It's a couple minutes long. Uh, so have some patience with it. Here we go.
So now you're entering into the Holy of Holies. That was the altar of incense. And this is the Ark of the Covenant. the Ark of the Covenant is Aaron's rod that budded and then the tablets of the, uh, the Ten Commandments. Okay, so that gives you at least a little bit of visual uh, objects that you can think about when you read through Exodus in this section. You have something that you can relate to in, in terms of the different pieces of furniture and so forth. So let me bring the PowerPoint back up. Okay. Do you have any questions, just visually, anything that stuck out to you that uh, you want to make mention of before we move along? Okay. So in this section, with the um, instructions given for the tabernacle, one of the things I want to point out to you is in chapter 25, verse 2, it says here, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. Now listen to some of the materials that they are to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins, dyed red, and hides of sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece of the garment of the high priest. So that's a lot of stuff for people that just ran out of Egypt. Uh, they have not been free very long. So where are they going to get this material that is going to build this tabernacle? Well, this has caused scholars to say this description here is a lot of the same materials that you find in the building of Solomon's temple later in the Old Testament. So one theory that is being factored into this chapter here is this is probably not a list of materials that was initially given to Moses to build the tabernacle, because where would they get them? Uh, yeah. They are nomadic people that have been on the run from the Egyptians. Now they've settled at the foot of Mount Sinai. So what scholars have suggested is this is an idealized description of the tabernacle to make it look as exquisite as Solomon's temple, because that's what's going to replace the tabernacle, is Solomon's temple, which uh, has plenty of materials and a lot of money that was thrown into it, as well as a lot of slave labor to build it. So... That's just a side note, is this might be a reflection of a later writer. Again, we said that several times in the book of Exodus, that later editors, later uh, writers will often take their context and their culture and kind of superimpose it back on the historical incident. That shouldn't worry us at all. I mean, what it is trying to do, remember is idealize this moment in the history of Israel because it is the dominant moment of a victory for them after 400 years of slavery. 
So um, the supplies, the metals, the stones, all these type of things eventually will be in place in Solomon's ornate temple. Um, we might have actually a much more humble representation of the tabernacle than what we find here. However, what we find next is a description of some of the items that are in the tabernacle. And it seems to me these items are critically important for the life of the nation, all the way from the Ark of the Covenant to the altar of incense and the lampstands and the table of showbread, the basin to wash in, as well as the place of offering. All these things are critical to that cultural worship uh, expression of this newly formed people. So uh, this is what I think is important. Come down to verse 8, chapter 25. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. That's the purpose of that. The purpose of this tabernacle is so that God might dwell among his people. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishes, furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now, it seems to me, just like any young couple that moves into their starter home, they continue to improve as the years go on by updating according to the resources that they have. And it seems to me that this pattern that is laid down probably would be very difficult to be uh, accomplished initially. But as they get settled in the land and as they have more resources available to them, I have no doubt that they came back to this pattern and kept trying to upgrade it uh, to the exact specifications that you have here in the book of Exodus. Does that make sense to everyone? Do you have any questions about that? I have one. Didn't they leave um, Egypt with gold and silver and fabrics and they plundered the Egyptian households when they left? It does say that, and we'll see in chapter 32 that one of the things that they do provide for Aaron to make a golden calf are some precious metals. The thing here that I see is when you look at the size of this tabernacle and you look at the specificity of some of the things that are here, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen, uh, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, hides of sea cows. Those are some very specific things uh, that, I mean, if you're on the run, even though you might plunder silver and gold from the Egyptians, it's highly likely that you want to be slowed down by dragging uh, the hides of sea cows behind you. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, so, they did fabrics, though, too. Yeah, right? oh, yeah. I'm sure that they had some, but there's some materials here that it's it would be highly unlikely for a group that's on the run um, to weigh themselves down with. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, is it is it possible? Anything's possible, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, it what it seems... It, it, is going on here is some symbolism that is kind of being reintroduced into Exodus to kind of highlight, especially in light of the fact if ex portions of Exodus are written around the time of the exile or even after the exile um, to Babylon and stuff, this inspiration would be a motivation as well to the people once they get back into the land to rebuild the temple that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. So there might be a number of motivations that are going on here in the text. Uh, yeah. Um, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, um, I was just going to say... Go, um, I was just going to say, they will rebuild the second temple, 
when they do come back from exile. And one of the great sorrows, if you read the book of Haggai, one of the small prophets, uh, minor oh, yeah. prophets, is that they're weeping that it doesn't have the glory of Solomon's temple and they didn't have the materials to do it. But when you fast forward into the New Testament, along comes Herod and Herod in his building project actually makes the second temple uh, mm -hmm. as great, if not greater than Solomon's temple. So it seems as though, this is just my take on it, Okay, it, it seems as though this text is not just something for the moment, nor is it just a historical record. It's also a national motivation, I think, that's going on here as well to help the people get back to the glory they lost in the uh, in during the time of the exile. So, yes, yeah, I was going to say that I, I like the way that um, they're not forced to give that they that mm -hmm. their hearts should be moved to give and they um, it, look it's a free will offering it's not like everyone must give 10 percent of everything they have mm -hmm. for this so i like that yeah I, yeah right there in verse three each man should give uh as his heart prompts him to give and of course that's a good that's a good um principle to live by you know why should you <laughs> give begrudgingly out of uh anger you know that type of thing let your heart be in it as well so great other questions comments how big was this tabernacle well it will give us the dimensions and i don't i don't remember off the top of my head the exact dimensions of it mark it's pretty it's pretty extensive so it'd be hard for so it'd be hard for them to carry, like you said, the the skins and the fabric and all that with them, if they're building this large building. Well, they do end up doing that, but it's not like they had the Egyptians breathing down their neck later while they're in the wilderness. So mm -hmm. when God moves them along to a new spot, um, it, it's like changing over Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse from a basketball game to an ice hockey game. It's going to take some mm -hmm. time to wrap everything up and move it and get it set up and, and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't have any doubt that they did that, but it, my thought is that they didn't, they probably could, well, uh, couldn't take that much material along with them out of Egypt if they're trying to escape in mass um pharaoh's army that is chasing them down so that's that's just my angle on it mm -hmm. so okay all right any other thoughts wasn't it so many cubits by like one only like yeah. one by two cubits or something like that isn't that only like i was just trying to look at this um okay go if you go over to chapter 27 and it, it here's some of the instructions for the courtyard, which is the outer section. It says in verse nine, make a courtyard for the tabernacle. And then it says the south side shall be a hundred cubits long. So what is a hundred cubits? Well, that's about 150 feet. If you have a notation at the bottom of your Bible. Okay. Then it says, um, it a uh, hundred cubits long and it's to have curtains of finely twisted linen with 20 posts and 20 bronze bases. So that's just one side of it that has 20 posts. Okay. Um, the North side shall also be a hundred cubits long and is to have curtains and 20 posts, etc. And then we're told in verse 12, the West end of the courtyard shall be 50 cubits wide and it, again, if you look at a notation in your Bible, um, that's about 75 feet. Um, so it's 150 feet by 75 feet. Mm. Mm. Okay, so that's, that's a pretty substantial uh, yeah. structure to, um, when you think about it. So mm -hmm. I'm just trying to think here as I sit in the dining room. 
our our uh, family room and kitchen is what about twenty two feet, wasn't it, Esty? In length, in total, both of them. Uh, thirty three. Like, or is it thirty? Okay, thirty three by twelve, wasn't it? Or mm -hmm. twelve by thirty three. So those of you who've been in our house, if you just think of our kitchen and family room, uh, thirty three. Um, feet, uh, 12 feet wide and 33 feet long. So you would have to multiply that, geez, about five, six times in length. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. That, that gives you, um, that gives you, I guess, a little bit of a perspective, yeah. you know, <laughs> so it's, it's very big. It's a, it's a big structure for sure. Okay. Next, God gives Moses these instructions uh, and tells him about the sacred objects that are to go in that, um, and the ark and the cover of the ark is probably the most, I hate to say the most important, but it's the critical part of this whole thing because that's where the uh, the tablets of the covenant are placed inside the ark and on top of it is called excuse me, the mercy seat, and there's a couple of golden cherubs that are on the top. Now, again, what I'm trying to point out to you is not so much the schematics here of the tabernacle, but tonight I'm just trying to point out to you that this is an ongoing story that's connected to the previous one. So th think about Genesis again. Remember after Adam and Eve are evicted from the garden, what is placed in front of uh, of Eden and prevents them from returning? It's two cherubs. You can see that in Genesis chapter three. So the representation that you have here is that the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant is almost like uh, symbolically uh, the Garden of Eden. And what we find is only the high priest can go in on the Day of Atonement once a year into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies and where the Ark of the Covenant is situated. What's also fascinating is in other passages of Scripture, like Psalm 80 and uh, verse 1 and Psalm 99 verse 1, the Ark of the Covenant is also called God's throne and God's footstool. So it's almost as if it's saying this is the center from where God rules his creation. And we might think of the tabernacle as kind of a mini creation um, of which we see in Genesis the um, the macro creation, the, the big uh, idea of God's rule over the entire universe. Here you have this um, this miniature version of it that they take along with them uh, as they travel through the wilderness. Just interesting observations that you go, I've seen this before, and, you know, it, it these patterns or these ideas keep popping back up every so often. So, Symbolism is really interesting because what we have here is a lot of creation illusions, okay? A side note here, because I think this will illustrate it, although it's funny. So if, if you watch uh, the Browns football game on Sunday, you would note that uh, there was a skunk that was loose in the stadium. And if, you can probably see this on YouTube, okay? So the question becomes, why is there a skunk in the stadium, in the middle of downtown on the lake? Where would a, a skunk come from? Number one, how did it get into the stadium? And why is it roaming free in that one section, okay? Well, if you're just thinking literally, um, you're, you're, I think, you missed the point. Someone snuck that a skunk into the stadium. 
the reason it didn't spray anyone is because it was probably descented. It was somebody's pet, probably. What was the message of a fan that let go a skunk in one of the sections of the stadium? Well, the brown stink. Do you get it? It's this idea that they've had an awful year. And and this kind of, this kind of becomes a symbol of this entire season. When you begin to think in terms of symbolism, one of the things that you begin to pick up on are the clues that that allow you to get the message. And I think that's what's happening in certain portions of Exodus. There's certain symbolic elements here that's telling you to think back, think back to creation uh, and different things like that. Does that make sense? I know that drives Western mindsets crazy because we are very linear in the way we think. And we like A to B and B to C and C to D. That's why the Bible will frustrate you. It's not written in a Western mindset. It's written in an Eastern mindset. And an Eastern mindset depends a lot more on symbolism. And that's why we can't get out of whack when we see that it's not a historical, pure historical record, that there's embellishments at times and there's emphases at times that we might not normally do trying to write a historical account. So these are the things that you pick up on, though, and you begin to appreciate the beauty and the artistry with which this text is communicating. So at times it leaves you frustrated. Join the club. Okay, that's just part of being a, a Westerner trying to understand an Eastern document. So, all right, enough of that side note. But, okay, there we go. So it's going to have a table and a lampstand and 12 loaves of bread, which represent the tribes. Um, it will have the menorah, the seven-branched candle uh, a lamp there as well. All of these things, and I'll come back next week, and I'm going to talk about each specific uh, piece a little bit more. I just want, I'm just introducing you to the 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 big idea that's in the text here. There's a bronze basin there. Uh, that Aaron and the priests can wash their hands and feet and so forth. So these are the elements um, that um, is told to Moses. This is what I want. These are the pieces of furniture I want in my tabernacle. What's most important for us to see for tonight is that um, the allusions to creation in the book of Genesis is reflected even by the color selections uh, and things like that. So you'll notice here it says the dimensions of the tabernacle itself are nicely ordered, just like the cosmos is ordered in Genesis chapter 1. Um, now notice the curtain that separates the holy place uh, from the ho most holy place is to have a bluish hue to it. Well, when you look at Genesis, uh, what you find is the blue also in God's creation is the sky immediately above the earth. Um, so there's elements there as well. Um, there's the idea of the bronze basin could symbolize kind of the waters that are found in Genesis chapter 1. So if we go on the symbolic element of a microcosmos, a mini creation versus the whole of creation, then what we might be seeing here is that every time the Israelites are to present an offering or come to worship, they are being ta taken back to the beginning of God's created order, where at that point in time, uh, Adam and Eve and early humanity experienced God's unfiltered presence because Genesis will tell us that 
God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day through the garden. Uh, the idea of the six commands here that are given, followed by a seventh one to observe the Sabbath, also kind of follows the week of creation, six divine commands. So I mentioned before that when you see the, the term, the Lord said to Moses, it's repeated uh, six times in chapter 25, verse one. You can see the other ones here. But when you get to chapter 31, verse 12, go, uh, go over to chapter 31, verse 12 for a second. It says here, then the Lord said to Moses, that's the seventh time he says that in this section. You must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come. So you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Whoever does any work on that day must be cut off from his people. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath uh, of rest, holy to the Lord. So this is still drawing upon um, the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. Uh, the seventh day is to be a day of rest. Last week, we talked a little bit about, well, it's kind of ambiguous. Uh, what What constitutes working on the Sabbath and so forth? And I told you last week that later, when this uh, is repeated in the book of Deuteronomy, it's no longer re uh, connected to the creation account. It's connected rather to them being delivered out of uh, Egypt. You shall rest on the seventh day because the Lord your God delivered you from the land of Egypt. So there's even a little bit of difference between Exodus and Deuteronomy. Um, even in this command. But my point right now is um, there's so many patterns that are being repeated in miniature here uh, from the book of Genesis. And it's it's a way of taking the people back to that pre-fallen condition, if that makes sense. Okay, just a couple more things for tonight, and then we'll look at the pieces of the furniture next week. Um, if you go over to chapter 31, in chapter 31, we are then told after all of these instructions that are given about the pieces of furniture that are to be in the tabernacle, not, not anyone can do this. There's uh, some specific subcontractors that are chosen to carry out this project. Take a look at verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have chosen Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts to make artisan designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. Moreover, I have also appointed Aholiab, uh, the son of uh, boy, Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. I have given skill to all the craftsmen to make everything I have commanded you. So these are the foremen on the contract here. Um, and that is to build this under their leadership and their skill set. So this management of the project is going to take not just physical skills, but do you see the word knowledge there uh, in verse three, knowledge in all kinds of crafts? That is um, the same word in Hebrew as ability. And many times it's translated, especially in the book of Proverbs, as wisdom. So it's 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 more than just uh, a mental knowledge here. And that's why it's emphasized with this phrase, I have filled him with the spirit of God. It's one thing to do a job. It's another thing to do the job with the right motivation, uh, with the the right outcome of bringing uh, glory to God because these things are being done to precision. And um, all of this is to be reflective 
of God's uh, uh, nature and, and that type of thing. So uh, I'll come back next week and I'll talk a little bit about um, the clothing of the priest. That's very specific as well. But mm -hmm. notice here you have these two gentlemen that are given uh, the leadership roles to lead the teams that are going to build all of these things. Any thoughts? Okay, so what I want to do in the few moments that we have left tonight is I want us to come over to chapter 32. In chapter 32, remember Moses is up on the top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. Yeah. Uh, and when you come to chapter 32, it says in verse 1, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. He could have died up there on the top of the mountain. Aaron, we want you to be the leader. And they're going to pressure Aaron uh, to give them a visible representation of God. And it's quite fascinating here that it's not just God. Notice it says here, come make us gods, plural. Come make mm -hmm. us gods, plural. So they... We've mentioned this a couple of times before uh, in this study. Um, they are not completely monotheistic at this point. The Israelites believe that there's one ultimate almighty God, and that's Yahweh, the one that brought them out of Egypt. But they're still believing in other gods at this point in their history. A technical term for it is called monolatry. Um, but what we find is that they want to draw upon, out of fear, the protection uh, that they need with a visible representation of God's presence among them. Well, that's what God's giving them in the tabernacle. However, it's not been built yet. And so while Moses is up there receiving all these instructions, what we find taking place is they go askew. And now Aaron is a co-conspirator of this. Take a look at verse 2, chapter 32. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol um, cast in the shape of a calf fashioning it with a tool. Okay, you know, in the Ten Commandments and other movies like that, you, this calf is the size of a St. Bernard or something. Mm -hmm. You know, um, this could be a very small golden calf here. When you think about how much golden metal would take to build something real large, um, you know, this could be uh, on a much smaller scale. However, mm -hmm. notice what Aaron says. Verse 4 says, He took what they handed him, made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool, and then he said, These are your gods. Plural again. O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So, we're playing into the mindset of the people who are still wrapped up in a lot of polytheism, the belief in many gods. But they need some physical representation. And once Aaron makes that for them, they decide they're going to have a festival and they're going to celebrate. And so verse six, the next day they rise early, they sacrifice burnt offerings, present fellowship offerings. Um, these type of things are... Uh, are not outlined in detail at this point in Exodus. You get a lot more detail to these two type of offerings in the book of Leviticus. 
But afterwards, they sit down, eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. They make a party out of it. So, um, you know, it's spring break for them. You know, <laughs> spring break down in Fort Lauderdale. You know, they're going to revel and they're going to party and that type of thing. In the meantime, um, what we're, we find is Moses is going to come down from the mountain. Actually, he's going to be prompted by God uh, to come down. Look at verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt. Okay, that's interesting. Not me, you uh, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it. They've sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, what's interesting here is it's a violation, obviously, of the commandments that, that Moses already brought down from Mount Sinai. You know, do not make any image of of God. But what's also happening here, I think, is um, their desire to be connected to other gods. And that's why they are called in verse 9 a stiff-necked people. Now, notice what happens here. God is close to losing it. Verse 10, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. There is this side here of, of God's nature. And it's almost as if, like, in what book? Genesis. <laughs> again, he's going to start over again. Then I will make you into a great nation, just like in the flood account. I'm going to, Moses, I'm going to start over with you. Uh, I mean, Noah, I'm going to start over with you. It's almost as if, Moses, I'm going to start over with you. But Moses jumps into the place of intercession, verse 11. Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Oh, Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? In Moses is being an excellent intercessor here. Because verse 13, he pulls God's attention back to the Abrahamic covenant. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by yourself, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Moses has this ability to say, your reputation is on the line here, God. You made a promise to Abraham that you're going to make this uh, these people a great nation. Um, so what happens next is interesting. Um, this is not the only place this occurs. So you need to keep your thumb here, and you need to go over to 1 Kings chapter 12. So go to the right in your Old Testament to 1 Kings and when you get to chapter 12, this is um, this is right after the reign of Solomon. And remember, Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines, and they brought all their gods along with them. And um, what we find is Jeroboam is going to come to the throne. And you can see that in verse 26, it says, uh, Jeroboam uh, rebelled against the king, and he was one of Solomon's officials. And when you then begin to look at this uh, rebellion, what takes place, if you come down to verse 28, is he is going to choose, um, uh, oh, I'm in chapter 11, hold on, there we go, get over to chapter 12. So Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son, sorry about that, I was a chapter off there. Jeroboam is so is pushing back on Solomon's reign in chapter 11. Chapter 12, you have Rehoboam, and 
uh, he is going to come to, to the throne following the reign of his father, Solomon. And one of the things that he does is he puts a heavy burden upon the people by increasing their taxes. Okay. Then that's not the only thing he's going to do, though. When you get down to verse 28, or let's begin at verse 25, here's the same thing that happens in Exodus 32. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem, I'm in verse 25 of chapter 12, in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And from there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the king kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David because now the, the kingdom is going to split under Rehoboam's oppressive tax system. It says in verse 27, if these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to the Lord, to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me in return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. And he said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this became a sin. The people went even as far as Dan to worship the one there. The incident repeats itself under Jeroboam. <clears throat> now, what's fascinating is the phrase that's used there. Remember how we couldn't figure out uh, why Aaron says, these are your gods? Here, there are two golden calves. These are your gods. So again, scholars are thinking, uh, maybe what's happening here is reflecting more on the rebellion of Jeroboam, and it's being retrofitted back in to Gen Exodus chapter 32, and it comes out in this phrase, these are your gods, because that's the exact phrase <coughs> that you see here in 1 Kings 12. So I'm not trying to confuse you. The two seem to be interconnected in some way. Uh, and the problem is the same, not worshiping God alone, but having rival worship. So you have a golden calf that Aaron makes, but you have golden calves that Jeroboam makes. And you have the same phrase in both places. These are your gods. So make of it what you will. I'm just pointing it out. That's um, that's an interesting uh, dynamic that's going on there. Any thoughts? All right. Back to Exodus 32. Moses intercedes. I've already said that. He's going to appeal to the Abrahamic covenant. But in chapter 32, there are 3,000 that lose their lives in the process of this rebellion. And Moses intercedes on behalf of the rest of the people so that the, the totality of the people are not wiped out. Now, what's fascinating, look at the bottom of this slide. Moses goes back to the Lord to make atonement. He offers himself. If you come down, one of the things that Moses is going to do is he's going to take the two tablets of what we call the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. He breaks them, grinds them into dust and mixes it with water and forces the Israelites to drink of it. It's like taking a dog and putting their nose into their poop type thing, okay? So what happens next is fascinating when you move over to chapter 33. In chapter 33, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There it's repeated again. And I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Ammonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. 
Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. There's the Abrahamic covenant again. But I will not go with you. Wasn't that the whole purpose of the tabernacle is for God to dwell among his people? Now he's withdrawing because you are a stiff-necked people and I just might destroy you on the way. <laughs> God's worried about his anger. If I go with you, I'm going to lose it. And then it says, when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put put on any ornaments for the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for this moment, I might destroy you. So the Israelites, verse six, stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. And now Moses will meet at a tent of meeting, which is another location. This tent of meeting is where he's going to inquire of the Lord. And in Moses' intercession at the tent of meeting, notice how God changes his mind. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That's a complete flip-flop from just a few verses earlier. So Moses plays a critical part in this whole text of interceding on behalf of a wayward people. And um, it's interesting that we find here this tent of meeting is where he will intercede on their behalf. And he has been doing it all along from the time when he was holding his hands up when they uh, were in battle to uh, now uh, meeting with God and reversing some of the consequences. So crisis averted. God is once again with the Israelites as they continue their sojourn. And um, we'll see next week that he's going to make some new tablets and this and that. But I just wanted to kind of orient you to um, this idea of the tabernacle and some interesting observations that are connected to this particular section of Exodus. So let me stop the share and see if we have any other thoughts or questions that you might have tonight before we finish up. Any thoughts, any questions that you have? Yeah. Beth Moore study about the tabernacle. I can't remember what it was called, but I remember at one point they said to draw the tabernacle, and I'm like, I'm not a Rembrandt, sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, well, there. If you go online, there's actually a lot of people that have done these type of virtual drawings, and and as like the one I showed you a little bit to try to help people visually see what the tabernacle is like. Um, it's easy to get caught up in the details of fabric and colors. Um, I think what's important here is to see that God is once again dwelling among the people, at, even as you see in Genesis. And he's, you know, even though at some points he's ready to throw his hands up and say, I'm done with you guys. Uh, he keeps coming back to his faithfulness uh, to stay with the people and help them uh, move closer uh, to that promised land that was promised to Abraham in the covenant. Other thoughts? I was really struck by how um, Moses reminds him of his promise and then but you, but you promised. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, and he was able to bring God back. Well, you're right. I guess I did, you know. So yeah. you're right. I'll go with you, you know. And if you think that if we were to like stand on his promises, how, you know, that he could change his mind for us too. I mean, yeah. if we. Yeah. And of course, there's a lot of, um, angles to the importance of 
of continuing to intercede in prayer. The only one theological hitch to all that is um, how you reconcile some of these type of passages with other scripture verses that says, I am the Lord, I do not change. So, you know, mm. you how you how you harmonize these two different types of passages is is a little bit of a, a challenge at times. It really is. But maybe he doesn't change his character, but he can change his mind. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of theologians are are have have come to a conclusion that uh, the operative will of God can switch and that type of thing, even though the core of his attributes stay the same. And that, mm -hmm. that's exactly right. Yeah, that's cool. Other thoughts? Yeah. All right. Well, we'll close up right here for tonight and um, appreciate you hanging in there. When we take large swaths of scripture, sometimes, um, you know, it's hard to follow. But at the same time, you don't see some of these observations. If you're mm -hmm. stuck just in one chapter, you can't see the bigger connections sometimes. So that's that was my goal tonight was just to show some of those. But all right. Well, okay. I hope you have a great evening and we'll pick up here next Wednesday night. Okay. Mm -hmm. Be careful going home. It's very windy out. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Don't blow it. All right. Have a good night, everybody. All right. Good night. Good night. Take care. Bye. 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 Bye.